Welcome back to another episode of At Least It's Not Rocket Science. I'm your host, Nathaniel, accompanied by my co-host. JJ, and accompanied by my co-host, Kyle. So welcome back. This is episode 12. Uh, apologies for taking a bit of a week off there. Uh, you know, between seasons, we had to take at least a week, right? Got to leave everyone wanting. And, you know, today we actually are celebrating a very special guest. Someone that's very important to our AIAA community here at OSU. And this person uh, has been uh, instrumental in making sure that each AIAA team that we have uh, interviewed or interrogated, depending on what you consider, uh, making sure that they've all been successful. And I would like to happily introduce... Oh, go ahead, Nathaniel. But not only AIAA, also the College of MIME. Oh, College of MIME and Engineering in general. I would like to happily introduce the... AIAA and College of Engineering liaison and president. Senator. Senator, yeah, you know, dictator. Wow, you James guys Shea. spent almost 30 seconds introducing me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you are entirely too kind here. I do a number of administrative duties within both the College of Engineering for the School of MIME and within AIAA. Um, Certainly not necessarily as technically engaged as some of the team captains do, but definitely a lot of work that needs to get done. Well, we really appreciate you being here uh, with us so that we could talk to you. You know, it's actually been a long-term goal of ours to actually get an interview with you. We know how busy you are, so we do really appreciate you being here. Yeah, uh, this job, or these jobs, I should say, certainly do not leave a whole lot of time to uh, be lazing around, but I'm glad I could finally make it out here. Yeah, we're uh, we're happy to have you. Um, you know, you know, standard interview questions. We're going to ask you kind of where how did, how did you get here? Did you were you born in Oregon? Did you start here? Yeah, so I am an Oregon resident by birth. So I've spent my entire life here and I've kind of known of OSU since probably middle school as being a well-regarded and good engineering program and it is uh, as any in-state tuition will demonstrate <laughs> definitely a preferable alternative than uh, some of the other options that may have made themselves available in the past so then was osu like the number one spot what? no actually i had another school in mind that i did end up getting into it was my personal reach school but it would have come with a price tag of about a half a million dollars so nice. my my yeah oregon state university <laughs> won out by a number of practical factors Let's so now leaves. what brought you into the mechanical engineering realm um I've always had an interest in the way that things work, and I've always had an interest in problem solving. And you put those two together, mechanical engineering, or if you're really smart, electrical engineering are kind of your two best options. And, well, I have my good reasons for going with mechanical engineering. So you, okay, so you are a mechanical engineering major. So every team that we interview, the team captain or one of the members, is mechanical and aerospace. Are you mechanical and aerospace? Yes, I am, though admittedly I've done notably less aerospace work than many of my peers who have been through here previously, as I am on a five-year track, so most of my interesting aerospace courses won't be until next year. You know, that's fair enough, because, you know, as team captain, I've spoken with you quite a bit, and as close friends with you and close friends of our peers who are close friends with you, we know how busy your schedule is, and so we can completely understand if it's a five-year or even six-year, seven-year, or eight-year track. Oh, I think there are people who would get very upset with me if I managed to push this one into six years, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
So yeah, it's a uh, it's extremely difficult work you do. I mean, even as like uh, OSURC, like the Robotics Club Vice President, I even work with you in that as well. Like in AIAA and in the OSURC, I work with you in that as like the engineering liaison. So there's a there's a lot of different uh, holes that you fill in for uh, MIME in general. So. Yeah. Um, speaking briefly to my other role, I am a senator to the School of MIME on behalf of the Engineering Student Council, which is essentially just a small student government that is supported and fully backed by the College of Engineering. Now, that means that I have the lovely duty of simultaneously being a very partial president to AIAA while also being an impartial member, member of the school. And I like to believe that I do that fairly well. I, I would agree. I, in the position that I'm in, I would I would see that you're pretty uh, you're pretty good at your position. You know, there's only so much that you can do in the position you're in, right? So, I mean, there's countless of times where we're all like, well, what do we do with this? Yeah. Go to James. Go to James. Yeah. Go to Ask James. James. Ask James. Or sometimes suggested, make and, it his problem. And I, I mean, like, even before being the president of AIAA or the senator, I mean, you were the, the guy that everyone would go to if, like, something was going on in class and you would talk to the prof and. Kind of be the voice of the class. Yeah, and the we students. won't mention we won't mention what your Discord name is, but there's a, <laughs> you're you're pretty famous in most engineering discords. Oh, I can't believe you brought that up. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. Harking back to what I said earlier about always having an interest in problem solving, any conflict within a classroom boils down to ultimately just being a problem and you get a bunch of students who think along the same lines and have the same problems then in most cases the instructor is going to be very willing to hear them so long as they're presented politely and formally which historically can be a struggle for some students not that i blame <laughs> them <laughs> yeah it can be a you know there's because there's so many different factors that go into that, right? Like there's there's student personality, there's there's student interest, there's teacher personality, teacher interest. Like everyone has their own experiences when they go into that. So it's it's very nice to have kind of that impartial, partial judge that comes in and can communicate in more of a polite and understandable way on behalf of the students rather than, you know, everyone bickering or disagreeing, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth based on student personality. Yeah, well, I seem to have done a good enough job of it thus far and I hope to continue doing a good enough job of it while I'm here. Yeah, I think that you've already done a great job so far. And, you know, not to brag or anything, but, you know, I think that I recall you being a certain member of a certain AIAA capstone team at one point, right? <laughs> oh, what, what team was that, James? Well, actually, you have double jeopardy here because previously I was both a member of your team, USLI, but I was also a member of OSURC. I briefly oh. worked with both the Mate and Mars Rover teams as I had the opportunity to participate in Mate in high school, uh, Mate being an aquatic robotics team. And so it felt really very familiar coming here in my freshman year. So I'm, I'm a bit of a double dipping with the OSURC vice president as well as the USLI <laughs> team captain. You're, 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 you're part of the alumni for both of them then. In some respects, yes. That's impressive. But I sadly can't tell you what to do. <laughs> it's usually the other way around. So Yeah, well. So we mentioned that you started in Oregon, and, you know, you did USLI. Oregon State University obviously is the, the more preferred option for you. So when you when you started here at, uh, at OSU, uh, what did you, like, career-wise, what did you want to do with your degree? I had no idea, which is probably why I chose mechanical engineering, That's because fair. it is 
truly one of the few degrees that is just absurdly universal for the number of fields that you could theoretically go into on the back of that degree. And to be completely honest, I still don't know what I want to do. But again, I mean, in a year, maybe two, I'll be out of here with that degree. So the opportunities are endless. I really think that because uh, we've had a few conversations with you know all of the team captains or, or team members of the AIAA teams, and you know I think that it really speaks to you know being an engineer that you don't necessarily have to go in knowing what you need to do right like uh, some people take it where their passions take them where the money takes them or maybe they want to work where you know in somewhere in the world where the the work is right. And I think that uh, you being as successful as you are with the you know AIAA president, I think that it uh, it really shows that you don't necessarily need to immediately know what you want to do with your engineering degree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would argue that any position, not necessarily even of leadership, but any position contributing to any objective, you don't necessarily need to approach it as simply a part of some bigger game, but you can approach it in, I suppose to use like terminology, a game of its own, that you're there to do something or possibly just have a good time and where it leads you, it leads you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly an advocate for, you know, skills, skills knowledge is just skills and knowledge that could help you further on in life at one point you know you might read a book now that tells you about you know something that you never think that you might use but years from now it might come in handy or like like nathaniel for reference uh over this past weekend we were working on uh, our full-scale rocket for usli and uh he had never really used like a hacksaw drill like a bunch of other stuff just because you never gotten you know you never just never gotten practical use with it and uh, I come around and I say, just do it like this, you know, use this. And uh, there you go. Practice. You get to use yeah. some of the tools that you never thought you'd use. And it's just more skills to add to your arsenal. So like management, you get to use like leadership. You get to use all these other things that even though you might not know what you need to do, you're kind of already rounding yourself off to be able to do them. And I think that's already what you're doing. Yeah. And I mean, in many respects of the word, um, there should be congratulations and props given to the university as a whole for their willingness to support not just engineering roles and clubs and student organizations, but also legitimate leadership roles. Nathaniel and myself are both on the executive board for AAA, and it's not an insignificant or shoot-in position. It is really an opportunity to experiment, to learn, to make mistakes in what is essentially a management and leadership position before you're out in the real business world where mistakes could theoretically have detrimental consequences to your professional life. Yeah, it's a it's a nice opportunity to get that kind of that experience and that work before you actually go into the field before it could become actually like extremely detrimental. Instead, you get to make the mistakes and learn now while you're still in university. Mm -hmm. So and I'm sure that you and Nathaniel could speak heavily on how that's affected you and your, your learning process, too. <laughs> So well, even just thinking about the subscale and full scale, I mean, as people have heard in previous podcasts, our subscale went in Stockton, just plummeted straight to the ground. Mm -hmm. Luckily, you know, that was a couple hundred dollars, but could have been a couple million if it was a real rocket. Yeah. And, and we all learned from our mistakes, too. So that we did. We launched our full scale recently. And, you know, instead of plummeting to the ground, it uh, successfully deployed everything that it needed to. Still, a few things went wrong, but <laughs> Try it to was run away a half a mile down the road. Yeah, <laughs> not nearly, not nearly as big of a failure that could have occurred. Oh, you know? it right. flew beautifully. Oh yeah, it <laughs> flew beautifully. So, so 
you know, you don't know what you need to do, which is completely fine. That's one of the messages we've talked about on the show is, you know, a lot of people, either people follow where the money takes them, which is, you know, fair enough, or people take it where their passion takes them. And, you know, if you don't know yet, then it'll find you. That's kind of what I think. Why the minor in aerospace then? And why not a minor in material science or robotics or software engineering or maybe yeah. double major in manufacturing oh yeah there you go so um i'm sure for the other folks who you have interviewed thus far you've gotten some very deep and insightful answers as to why they chose to go down the aerospace track and i'm going to be completely honest at the end of the day my reasoning is almost entirely on the fact that i just think they're kind of neat i, I think that's completely <laughs> that's fair, fair yeah. yeah that's a fair answer i mean like in my opinion, <laughs> rockets are a lot cooler than like planes. Or, or rockets are a lot cooler than cars. I'll tell you that. Not everyone can buy a rocket. Everyone can buy a car eventually. Just think they're neat. I just think they're neat. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we even get the opportunity here at, at Oregon State at Oregon State University that we can even get a minor in aerospace is pretty amazing to me. Because I cannot think of a state further away from being able to launch a <laughs> rocket than Oregon. You know, because normally the equator is where they, they launch stuff because you don't have to use as much delta V to get to the equator to get orbit and, you know, be on, like, the, to the solar system axis. Right. Could always be worse. Could be from Minnesota. Yeah, you could, <laughs> yeah I was going to say, you could be very far north. And, you know, it's uh, the Oregon Space Grant Consortium. You know, that's another example of, like, there's even astronauts that have started at Oregon State University. They got their master's at ASU, and then they uh, they flew up to space, which is kind of the track that I'm on, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a fair example, though, because like, you're kind of – you're not exactly following the money. You're not exactly following, like, your dreams per se, but you're following what you are interested in, which I think is kind of like – a lot of people kind of get lost sometimes in that where they, they don't think about – what they want to do they think about what can make them the most successful but they don't necessarily think about like their own interest and the fact that you're kind of thinking about the aerospace minor as like uh you know you think it's cool i think that's even like the the the, the base start i think that's awesome and honestly i would argue fairly passionately that minors and electives are a good way for people to act on things that they just think are kind of cool but don't necessarily know a whole lot about. I know that I have quipped many times to probably everyone in the room that I'm almost certainly going into some track of engineering management because it pays very well. <laughs> but that is not necessarily requiring one to have aerospace knowledge. That aerospace knowledge then takes a position of just being something there that can provide potential opportunities even if they're not necessarily taken kind of ties back into kind of today with we learned that some people yeah. uh some people in the class actually aren't even an aerospace minor they're just taking the class because they saw it on the list of classes <laughs> and are like that seems like fun yeah yeah we we learned that today uh we thought the person was crazy in fact <laughs> yeah <laughs> because what, why are you doing this yeah dr albertani's class is a very interesting and very insightful but it is also very difficult as one can imagine yes and um that is historically what i've definitely heard about the aerospace courses at this university taught by any number of teachers um they have always been very difficult but at the end of the day that is because you are 
quite literally studying rocket science. I was going to say, the name of the podcast is at least it's not rocket science. In this case, it is definitely rocket science. <laughs> Most definitely. Nah, never. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. could never be. I would, say, I would say in Dr. Albertani's class currently, it is more of plain science. Yeah. We haven't discussed rockets too much, but it is certainly uh, pertinent to what we're doing. Next you know. term, though. Next term, yes. Uh, for AAE 412, that is what? Space, space systems. systems Engineering? Yes. That one is certainly going to be rocket science. And radiation. For it. And radiation. Oh, good. My favorite. And orbital mechanics. And, ooh, <laughs> that's exciting. So right now, you are AIAA president here at OSU. You're also the MIME uh, senator. Is that the right term? Yes. Um, and then you're... So right now, okay, so personal knowledge. I know that you're not doing that many credits right now because of how much time your position takes up. Yes. Um, but as you go on into more, like, school and, like, capstone and all that, do you have, like, anything that you envision that you want to do, like internships that you're looking into or so on and so forth? I've had the opportunity through the MECOP program to take a six-month internship with Boeing, which was very interesting, and it was very nice to dip my toes into the world of aerospace. But I'd be very interested in taking an internship with a company that actually is more focused on space systems, be that rockets or satellites. I mean, even divisions of Boeing that are just in different locations and focused on different topics is definitely something I'd like to do. But other than that, it is a pretty straightforward track for me to go through my next year, get the remaining electives and requirement classes as well as capstone out of the way with, and then graduate. Well, there you go. I was going to say, it's uh, your process is certainly... Uh... I mean, I think that we're, maybe not all of us, but a few of us are very irregular students or, you know, <laughs> non-traditional students, right? I, I think, Kyle, or is it is it you that also, like, you've kind of moved around first before you went to school, or did you start going at OSU as a freshman? I started going to OSU as a freshman. Okay, so maybe I'm the only non-traditional student. I did kind of bebop around on oh, yeah. what I was doing. And also, Nathaniel, I guess, started as a civil engineer, right? No, um... Coming out of high school, I was thinking about civil engineering. Went to community college. So both came you and to I. OSU, and then I was like, mechanical. Yeah. So in that in that sense, where you're not just a four year student, I guess you would be considered a non traditional student with us. And I think that that's a com- <laughs> I think that's a completely fair. I mean, I I hate the term non traditional, right? Because it assumes that what you're doing is abnormal. But I feel like that what we're doing in general is completely normal in the the position of because college is meant to learn right yeah and um i can't necessarily speak to the specifics of where i heard this metric and what it was in regards to but i have heard that the university uses a six-year graduation track as opposed to a four-year which is perhaps in the common psyche for a college student Mm -hmm. and frankly i have heard of people who choose to walk a path of working part-time and then being a part-time student so their graduation is a matter of eight or more years and i've heard people who hustle through here in three and at the end of the day i have every reason to believe that all of them either have been successful or will be successful when they do get on out of here yeah i mean it's only again i always think of it as like a matter of time like no matter what you're doing here at school like you're always learning skills you're always learning how to do things you're always learning leadership you know teamwork so on and so forth it's like all that you're ever doing is learning more and more skills as you're in school for longer. 
And honestly, even beyond the classroom, college is a unique time that um, I think would be wasted if to be spent entirely on academics, though perhaps not necessarily a topic to discuss in earnest in this sort of a podcast. Making mistakes and trying new things is something that very much extends beyond the campus, especially as we all turn 21 and beyond. <laughs> yes, of course. However, I think everyone here is beyond 21 and still in school. So yeah. that's fair that, uh, you know, that life is all about learning, right? Yeah. We had a uh, serious talk about this right before winter term, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. Ooh, am I? Okay. You're good. Just and, keep talking uh, loud. Just keep talking loud. I got to talk louder. Okay. There you go. Oh, uh, yeah. We had a serious talk about this and kind of like talking about perseverance, potential engineers, potential college students in general. And it really is a marathon. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a sprint. And I, I've tried that sprint. I had my schedule set up for a four-year program, and that almost, like, did me in. I was like, you know what? I'm done with this. I, I got I to gotta take a break. <laughs> I can even say now, like, with – I mean, I, you guys have heard this plenty, but it's, like, with uh, USLI and, like, all my classes, and then I'm doing, like, my NASA mentor stuff – it's like it's been such a, a slog. It's like every night, you know, like this week even alone, like I've done 70 hours for USLI work alone <laughs> and then plus school and I had an exam this term or like this week. and you Literally know, today? Had, yeah, literally today. We've had a paper to write. It's, it's Sleep is for the week. Sleep, yeah. <laughs> so thankfully because I have such a supportive friend group and supportive team, like Nathaniel now is, is the USLI co-team captain, so he's been helping <laughs> reduce a lot of the stress that I've had to, to suffer. And so now he gets to suffer through part of it. But uh, it's been very helpful in keeping me uh, from going quite insane because, uh, it, you know, it's a lot of work making sure that we get everything done. Speaking of, you and I need to hit the gym tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to say. No more excuses. (laughs) It's been uh, very difficult overall, you know, trying to balance, like, your personal life, your school life, your health, uh, you know, your capstone project, uh, even outside of our capstone project. Like, capstone as a class, we have all of our NASA USLI stuff that we still have to do for NASA. It's been, uh, you know, it's exhausting. It's rewarding, of course. But, man, is it... uh, is it tiring? I was gonna say what personal life? Yeah. <laughs> what personal life? Like, like uh, between the, the sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Like between the whole team, we had about what nine hundred hours put into a, just yeah. this rocket last yeah. last week. Exactly. Exactly. And we have another. I, I bet we're all gonna have about fifty, sixty hours this week, yeah. and then next week. Because we are in fact going to the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, OMSI, and mm-hmm. Portland Friday or Saturday and Sunday uh, <laughs> to do a panel for our STEM engagement, and that'll be March fourth and fifth. Yep. And Correct Nathaniel, you your birthday is also coming up. So, yeah, so March second. So you're trying to work to make sure that you can at least take some personal time <laughs> off. <laughs> Hopefully. So. We bring you more work for your birthday. Yeah, yeah that's your present. Happy birthday. Happy I need birthday. this by, by tomorrow. I predicted this, too, when I was looking at this to next term and everything that's due, FRR and all that. I was like, hey, look, that package is due right before my birthday, so I bet you're going to be working on it. Yep. It's all right. My, yep. uh, my birthday is the Friday of finals week. Ooh. Oh, is it really? Mine is in uh, GG's. Mine is in summer, so oh. mine never matters. July 22nd. Matters to you, but... Uh... Mine yeah. is in April, so it gets well, celebrated oh, at the start of summer. Wait, yeah. what, what? When in April? April sixteenth. Oh, it's going to be when we're in Alabama. That's oh, literally our relaunch date. In case oh the fifteenth, yeah, in case the fifteenth doesn't work. 
We'll have to send you a special message. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, man. So you're AIAA president. Uh, you're MIME senator, and you're still doing school, and you're on the the six year track. Is that what I'm reading? Hopefully the five year track, but we will see. You never know, right? Yeah, you you <laughs> got this in the bag. Life man. happens, right? And so. When you're out of school, you're kind of just looking around, kind of kind of figuring what you want to do from there. Um, so what are your interests now then? Like, uh, what do you enjoy doing now, like, outside of school? Well, outside of school, um, I am fully prepared to give the most generic engineering response that Fair you've enough. ever heard. Uh, fortunately, having lived in the Pacific Northwest my entire life, uh, of course, I'm interested in hiking. Um, and what nerd would I be if I weren't into video games? There you go. And beyond that, um, I think I will pick up a third uh, common one among engineers and say that there are a few things I find more relaxing than sitting down with a nice Lego set every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because as we were prepping for our uh, our FRR launch, our our vehicle design or demonstration flight for the full scale. I right after our AAE 411 class, I took Kyle, uh, Nathaniel, and our other teammate Ian. I took them back to my place because I was going to drive my Jeep over so we could do black powder testing, and they got to see inside my my apartment, my dungeon, my own personal dungeon, and they saw all of my Lego sets, which was <laughs> the Lego Saturn V, the Lego Moonlander, and the ISS. So Good they got to see my my full collection. So what's your opinion on the space shuttle then? Oh, and the space shuttle, I have that too. The space shuttle. I think my favorite one is probably the Saturn V, to be honest. Fair. The Saturn V is so massive. And it's <laughs> so cool because I have it laying down like next to my uh, my AC unit. The Saturn V is beautiful. Oh, right. beautiful, perfect <laughs> engineering right there. Uh, what is it? I believe it's the Johnson Space Center um, in Texas mm-hmm. has. A, I don't remember, I believe it is a model. It is a one-to-one replica of a Saturn V. They have, the, they have the one of them. Configuration, and it is a sight to behold. Have you been there? Yes, I was there in high school during a robotics competition. Um, and I'm glad I took that tour because walking at a normal pace, I think it takes about two minutes to walk the length of that thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I... Uh... Not to brag, of course, but I got a personal tour from someone that worked at uh, that uh, Johnson Space Center. Oh. And I also got to see the Saturn V, but I also, I'm, I'm scrolling through my photos right now to show you a picture. I got to sit in the mission director's chair of the Johnson Space Center at the <laughs> Apollo mission director's chair. And this was something that normally people don't get to do, but you know the right people, you can get in there. And... <laughs> That was pretty amazing to see. That was it back in 2016, I think, or 20, yeah, 2016. And that whole complex is massive. Like they have so much stuff in there that, uh, you know, it's it's history in the making, of course. And all the buildings, of course, are from like the 60s and 50s. So you feel like you're traveling back in time as you go into that complex. They got those green walls. Oh, dude, with it's the, nasty. The beige. Yeah, it's all beige and it's green. <laughs> you know, all of it's so old. The classic. Yeah, it's but you know, you you go in there and it's it's amazing. And seeing the Saturn V, like standing next to those massive engines. You know, the boosters alone, like the, the building being like 356 feet long, you know, the, the Saturn V is a, a masterpiece of engineering. It's 
it's horrifying almost to see, right? Because <laughs> it's so big. It's like, how can man even make something that big that's basically disposable, right? It's like that's supposed to get us to the moon. So You think that's bad. Have you ever visited the space, Air and Space Museum in Florida where they launched? No, I really want to go there, though. Um, I went there once, and we got we to gotta see, like, the, you know, where they pull it out of that giant, what do you call it? It's basically a giant closet that they hold the, the rockets in. We got to go walk around, and it you just feel tiny, ant size. <laughs> and we got to walk around, and they have all the, the replicas and um, the old, like, ships and satellites and things like that. And you got to look up, and you kind of see the progression of engineering on, um, you know, like – fumbles and figuring it out and you can see all the successes and things but you know you look up and you're like damn <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's like oh, these yeah. things are massive i had a, a similar experience when i went over to evergreen and i saw a titan 2 for the first time from the very bottom and i look up and i'm like wow this thing is huge remind me what titan 2 is titan 2 mm-hmm. it is um uh, spacecraft? No, I'm just kidding. It is a <laughs> ICBM that the Air Force made. Oh, okay. Way back, long time ago. Um, and luckily here at Evergreen, there's one that's fully in configure and launch pad configuration. And I mean, it's massive. Oh, I gotta go see that before I move. They even have the the engines at the bottom too that you can actually go and touch, put your head in, Whoa. whatever you want to do. That's crazy. Yeah. We've talked briefly about Evergreen Aviation Museum in McMinnville, but they have. I really want to go see that stuff before USLIs out. That should be our trip is to go yeah. go with they, they even have one of the, the launch control rooms in there. Really? So as you walk down in the silo, there's a little room that has the launch control. Like a missile silo? It, yep. it's, it's supposed to simulate a missile oh, silo. Okay. But yes. I bet you it used to be a missile silo. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know if, like, you know, during the Cold War, that was one of the missile silos because, you know, they, well, they're definitely. all over. They, they, I mean, they the Cold War, they also have an SR-71. Yeah, I was going to say that, <laughs> man, that thing is crazy. I still love the SR-71. I mean, they don't just have, like, giant holes laying around. Yeah, around. yeah. <laughs> they're not going to dig the hole for the museum. I right? mean, we just, well, you know, just had this laying around. Yeah. Well, made a museum Toss it in there. It. When I was also talking to um, the coordinator over mm-hmm. there, he was telling me that they originally built the space building. So they could put a space shuttle in there. Whoa. Uh, he didn't quite know, and he didn't really tell me about how that deal went. but Or what space shuttle would be there. Yes. and That would have been super cool uh, to have that in there, like a space shuttle. Um, you know, there's only a few of them were still around. I've seen two of them actually now, I think. I've seen the one that's at Johnson, and I've seen the one at the California Science Center. Have you ever seen the orange fuel tank? The big one. Mm-hmm. Those things are crazy big. It's horrifying how big they are. So, yeah, it's amazing stuff. So, I've only seen one space shuttle. It was a space shuttle discovered, which is currently housed in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And it's interesting to compare that to one of the trainer replicas that is positioned up in. Oh, gosh, people are going to get mad at me for this one because I don't remember which city it is in exactly, but I believe it is in the Boeing Air and Space Museum in Seattle, not the one in Everett. Um, Because both of them give you a feel for, as we've talked previously, just how massive these things are. Yeah. And while obviously you can't go aboard a national treasure, the 
Discovery, you are allowed to walk aboard the trainer to get a real feel for just how much space we were sending up, how much space you can send up with those massive fuel tanks. Yeah, it, it's it's like the boosters, the fuel tanks, all of it is, I mean, it's way bigger than they, they need, right? Like, there's a reason why they retired the shuttle program, just because it was cheaper than normal, like cheaper than the Saturn V, but still pretty expensive, right? But they still sent them up. They, they would fix things, the Hubble being the biggest example, how they went up and fixed the mirror on that. But it's crazy how much money that these things cost, but also <laughs> how much they saved, you know, over the years when they started doing it, so... Yeah. Um, in fact, you were talking earlier uh, about um, the assembly buildings that they use before shipping them out to Launchpad. And you can find some very interesting time-lapse footage of the assembly for the space shuttles. And it's really funky how the boosters are stacked piece by piece. Then the tank, because it is one solid object, is brought in. Mm-hmm. And then the shuttle, which is also just one solid object, is brought in very carefully lifted and rotated before being mounted to the tank. And that entire process, by the time's la- time lapse, must have taken north of seven days. And it's just a phenomenal sight to see because you have these people who look like ants just running around making sure that everything's going right. And then at the end of it, you have a space-capable, vaguely reusable vehicle. Yeah, that's it's like the, the vehicle assembly building in at Kennedy Space Center. I think they repainted the NASA meatball recently. <laughs> but that vehicle assembly building, I think that that has the largest vehicle volume, or sorry, largest volume of like any building in existence, I'm pretty sure, or it's like it's highest, one of the highest up there. Because it has to be more than 356 feet tall for the Saturn V, but also it's just like the square footage of that building is massive. Actually, my uh, my dad introduced me to someone who was working down one of his projects uh, who helped work on the steel for that building. Like, they helped create the frame out of steel for it. And they said that it was, uh, one, when they were creating it, it was like a massive amount of steel they ordered just to create the, the foundation and the frame and the structure for it. And you think about the VAB in general, think about the crawler. The crawler is like an old excavator like mining vehicle that they just took the excavator buckets off of and they're using that to drive the you know the shuttle and like every vehicle around it at kennedy space center have you seen some of the test equipment that they just cobbled together it's the estacada engineering well it yeah (laughs) well they i was reading up on i can't remember what it was they officially called it but they basically scrapped a bunch of jet engines and then they put it on an excavator and then they instead of having uh, or compressing fuel it compressed water so they used it into a firefighting device and it's like this giant you know transformers looking monstrosity that like turns over and then it's like get wet (laughs) (laughs) it's like fire be gone (laughs) yeah that kind of reminds me of this thing this video i was watching the other day actually last night uh it's of one of the first cannons to launch things out into like sub orbit Mm -hmm. so just below the iss and just like enough to call space and what they did is they got two navy ship barrels 16 feet long and welded them together and then put a metric ton of black powder in and just (laughs) launched this thing out and i'm just like wait when was this um i don't know when it was well it was a long time ago from the video it said it was like war two uh i don't I wouldn't yeah, say that powder. long ago. 
but yeah, it was pretty here pretty here. far back. Just put a metric ton of black. Uh, I have to look, I have to fact check see exactly when, but that seems like too little. Put more in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the video when the guy in the video was like, yeah, it's a metric ton of black powder. I'm like, Whoa. have you seen wow. some of the the new concepts for that to save money, save save uh, uh, rocket fuel and things like that? I saw a concept design where it's a centrifugal force. Yeah, so you know, like those yes. uh, those uh, you know where they, where they experience G suits. Things like that. It's like a, a tilted centri- sideways. Centrifuge. centrifuge. Yeah. 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 It's a. It's kind of tilted at a 45 degree angle, and it just picks up speed and picks up speed. And it's supposed to be entirely electric, and it's going to pick up speed. It's going to pick up some more speed, and then just <laughs> fling it, out. Yep. fling it along its tangent, all like halfway to space, and then it'll like boost, boost. and well, go up. Um, vaguely related to that, in just the realm of novel space launch systems is i don't remember i believe they ran into technical errors so they didn't quite make orbit but a little while ago uh virgin orbital on the back of a heavily modified boeing 747 or i suppose i should say slung under the wing <laughs> launched their first rocket or their first attempt at an orbital flight and it's interesting to see how you can get that weight savings because the rocket being launched off of that is way smaller as you might expect than something that is used for cargo from the ground and that or spin launch or cannons are very interesting <laughs> ways to see how you might be able to save on the expendable non-reusable elements I like of launching the, uh, i like that we're just gonna chuck it <laughs> just throw it harder <laughs> well that, that's a that's a fair point though it's like uh, i think so i've i've read a lot of papers about like a uh, mass driver which is essentially it's like a rail gun and Ooh. what you do is well okay so earth is massive of course we know that and you know the atmosphere and all that causes all sorts of friction issues but they've always theoretically looked at the moon as a good launch like launching point because you don't have to worry about the atmosphere you know there's plenty of helium-3 so they can make special fuel and so they've always talked about putting a mass driver on the moon so all you have to do is you know set a rail gun like horizontal or tangent to the the moon surface and send it with enough velocity that it orbits around it and so they've talked about using kind of like the cannon you mentioned or kind of like the the slingshot centrifuge you mentioned uh they've always talked about trying to do something like that where it would just mass driver it over the lip of the moon essentially and get it into orbit and it's way more like cost effective and fuel effective than just launching straight up and then orbiting i love the concept of the railgun did i tell you how obsessed i was with the railgun uh-uh. <laughs> so when i was still doing the, the navy rtc i was like this is what i want to do i want to go into the navy and i want to work on the railgun they, they canceled it sadly and my dreams were crushed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, like, did a paper on it, and I, like, looked at it, and, like, I was actually planning on building my my own little home one because people have done it before. There's just designs out there. I'm like, I'm going to be the – I'm going to do it. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to be one of them. But have you seen some of the, the specs for, like, a fully realized railgun? I know that it yeah. takes, like, a massive amount of energy. Ridiculous amount. amount of energy. <laughs> But that's not in the issue they ran into. massive capacitors. Yeah, that's not the issue they ran into. The issue that they ran into was that the rods that they were using to mm-hmm. run this current through would burn out after, like, two shots. Yeah. And they're so integrated that it's just not feasible to, like, reload rods, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it defeats the purpose of having a railgun anyway instead of, like, you know, a traditional, you know, click boom. Um, <laughs> but it's, like, it is so conceivably powerful. It's crazy. So uh, a fully realized railgun, if you didn't know, is entirely kinetic. So it has an initial black powder 
spark that gets it going. And then it'll cycle through the the rails and pick up energy. And the then magnetic just, coils. Boom. Just launch. Send it. Send it. Full send. Kinetic. But it can go so fast. And so at such a speed that it'll turn the air just from the force of friction into plasma. So it's not actually touching the air anymore. It has this little film. It's burning it up as it goes through it. It's just burning through, you know, targets and things. And the, they have, like, videos on on this where they would have, like, steel, like, solid, you know, two feet thick steel and plates. Just, and it just right through. Yeah. Just, it just keeps going. It's it's like pretty butter. amazing. If they could ever find a way to use that, to, like, that technology to launch rockets, it would be... It would be revolutionary. First off, it's like we talked about a few weeks back. It's like, oh, you just you know bend face, you know bend space time in front of the the craft, <laughs> and just, you know, lift it up behind it. It's that easy, right? But I mean, this is actually conceivable. Yeah. Because if you had a large enough, like you take one of those missile silo bays, tilt it, you know, at like a thirty six, I think degree angle was optimized Something. with air, air resistance, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, you know. Put a bunch of those rings. It's like it's like a sci-fi thing at yeah. this point because you have like those uh, power. those hyperlink rings or something. Oh yeah, because that's basically what they are. It's like every time you go through a ring, pushes it more, more and more and more. more. Yeah. And you can have it like a accelerator, so it spins around, and spins around. like hey, you know, set, set, you know, pick up speed, and then just alter it. Just yep, boop, sends it off. All entirely electrical. Yeah, you probably have to redo like all the. Uh, wiring after you're done. You might have to do it, you might have to do it in a vacuum at that point. Possibly. Air resistance being uh, as annoying as it is. But considering the amount of force that you can get at, out of a single, you know, I think the payload for the railgun that they wanted was like 600 pounds, 300 pounds, something like that. Um, a small cabin, you know, with something s- scaled up. Yeah, just think of the possibilities. Sci-fi. Yeah, it's amazing. Sci-fi become reality. So speaking of sci-fi, James... You know, it, it. We never really ask guests per se, but maybe we'll start to make it more of a, more of a tradition. Is. Do you think aliens are out there? I think that it is highly probable that there is life beyond our own out there. However, is that life any bigger than microscopic? Yeah. It's a very political answer. I think I answered the same way when I've talked about <laughs> this. Well. I, it's, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I definitely want to believe that uh, there is life out there that is either ignoring us or afraid of us. Um, but I will unfortunately have to believe that one when I see it. Yeah, that's a that's a fair that's response. Fair, yeah. I think we're we, the uh, we're the bad part of the neighborhood. Yeah, they lock, they yeah. lock their doors when they try. To yeah, lock. yeah. I was gonna say. Well, we, you know, we we always talk about like because like we brought up like Voyager, you know, Voyager one, Voyager two, and you know the discs that are on them, and like we've talked about like you know. Our assumption is that if aliens find the discs, like their their digits are this ten, not twelve, you know, or not eight, you know, we assume that they they that numbers are universal, right? And it's like the the Arecibo signal and all this other stuff. It's like, and also if aliens are out there, you know, are they close enough to get our messages? <laughs> like, are they just you know, are they just reading our te- are they leaving are they ghosting our texts basically? Leaving you know? us on red? Yeah, they're leaving us on red. <laughs> Or is it just taking so long for our message to deliver? The Wi-Fi signal isn't very good on their planet. They're still on dial-up? <laughs> yeah, they're still on dial-up, right? Or they're still using smoke signals. Call me back when you do something yeah. impressive. Interstellar smoke signals that, we, you know, it's so far that we can't reach them. Do you think in our lifetime we might ever get into communication with – maybe not even our lifetime. Do you think hu- humanity as, like, a history and in the future could ever reach well, alien life? I mean – 
there's a very specific word you use there that it itself is worth talking about communication i mm -hmm. believe what just sending a simple text command between one of our rovers on mars and earth is six, 30 minutes 30 minutes yeah so think about it something outside of our solar system even if it was just a basic text package assuming we could even comprehend what text is on either side of the equation how long would it take to travel assuming we could even pick up that signal yeah i mean if you were to send a signal to uh, proxima centauri b is four light years so it takes four years for a message to get there and four years back i would certainly believe that as humanity continues to have interest beyond the stars there's definitely a point where I would say, quite seriously, if we do not find life out there, then we will become the life out there. Um, I definitely think it will be entirely too optimistic to suggest that will happen in our lifetimes, but I think it will very much happen in humanity's lifetime. Hey, we're all smart. I mean, we can make it happen. I'm always one for, I'm always one for toxic optimism. The, the Artemis mission, I mean... There you go. pretty much going to lead up to that. That's, that's the hope, right? I mean... If you think about humanity in general, we're, you know, I think we've recently just passed 8 billion people on Earth. We're, we're a positive feedback loop. You know, the more, <laughs> the more years go by, the more that increases, you know, that difference. Right. We're not going back to the equilibrium. We're increasing it, right? We're Wrong increasing past. the standard, yeah. Above and beyond. So at a certain point, you know, it's going to either be, you know, we have to move out of Earth or we have to figure out a different solution. We go into Earth or we go out. Well, I mean, here's a question for all three of you. Let's say that sometime... I wouldn't say this is impossible during our lifetimes, though it may still remain improbable. A baby is born, either in space, on the moon, or on Mars. Yeah. By definition, that is an alien. Yeah. I, I mm -hmm. would, I, I always, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I talked to my family a few weeks back about this. Like, you know, if they were born outside of Earth, you know, that's the first, you know, alien, like you mentioned. Or if they were born on, you know, the moon or Mars, like they're not technically of Earth. So how would how would humanity handle that? Because no one can own the moon or no one can own Mars. So, like, what are they a citizen of? You know, are people going to try to, like, say, like, oh, they can't come back to Earth, even though their parents are from Earth, like they're Martian or, you know, what what is what's going to happen at that point? Is that just like product of the U.N.? Is that product of, you know, some sort of Martian conservatory that we have to create? Well, I mean, before you even get there. There's a million questions that I'm certainly not specialized in the realm of biology enough to even begin to consider with respect to whether or not they could survive on Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one too. You know, even even I think maybe last or last week or two weeks ago, there's a show called The Expanse or the books. Have you ever <laughs> seen that or watched that? Yes, I was uh, going to bring that up later because I think it does an excellent job. Um, doing a fairly hard science fiction approach to a number of things we've discussed, including life on other celestial bodies and railguns. Yeah, yeah railguns <laughs> being definitely one of them. Like gravity, like UV radiation, like yep. the, the brightness of the sun based on proximity to Earth, like all that. It's, you know, humanity eventually, I think in my own toxic, optimistic personality, I think that humanity's uh, eventual destiny is to move out to the stars and you know our ability to adapt and overcome based on our environment is one of our biggest strengths i think especially since how uh you know earth is fairly variable when it comes to uh, the environments that exist on it you know there's high high colds high you know uh high heat 
you know, all that. Like Mars, I think, recently had a, a hot period where it was the hottest of like five degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. <laughs> you know, and when we launched our full scale rocket, it was colder than that. You know, and that was the hot day at Mars. Like not saying that it's a, you know, people could easily survive that. But, you know, that condition is not necessarily out of the realm of possibility when it comes to survival. You know, right. and at a certain point, if you're raised in that condition and not, this, you know, oxygen, obviously needing to be a necessity as a human, you know, you're raised in that kind of environment. I don't think it's completely outside of the realm of like, you know, evolution, adaptation and, you know, ingenuity for humans that uh, they could people could survive in that, especially if you're and it's such an interesting and fascinating, you know, thought experiment where if you're raised on Mars, like how much different from an Earth born person would you be one thing that really gets me is the the uv radiation that you mentioned it's Mm -hmm. just like that always gets me i'm like well yeah if you're born in space how much of a difference is it and then like if you're born in mars like and then you come visit earth because there's no ozone are you gonna like Mm -hmm. what's gonna happen to the are you gonna burn up on earth or like because you're closer to the sun now yeah and you're not used to like absorbing this much you're just like uh or if an if you're on earth like maybe you're just like you don't even have to wear sunscreen because you're so used to that uv radiation constantly being absorbed into your skin on mars well you and i talked about this briefly i thought a while ago about solving these genetic issues yeah where uh eventually we might get to the point where we would self-evolve ourselves where we bust out crispr and start you know snip snipping uh dna and you know playing around with that and because uh, there are animals and signs of life that exist that can do those extreme environments. Extremophiles. That, extremophiles, yeah. yeah. And then can retain, like, body mass. Can They, they can retain moisture. They I can mean, retain... tardigrades. Yeah. Think about it like tardigrades. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, gene splicing and, like, animal, like, human mixing adaptations, you know, that's, like, a thing of, like, science fiction. But if you think about it realistically, like, if for whatever reason we ever needed to sur- like as a necessity survive in certain environments, like tardigrades literally can live in a vacuum for a certain amount of time. They can be desiccated and revived with water. Well, the point that I was trying to make was, so be- say interplanetary travel becomes more and more of a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to have these issues like, you know, hypertension, tension for the heart, yeah. you know, uh, bone, bone density, bone density being reduced. Right. Like yeah. that. Uh, those are all the body's natural responses to its environment. Yeah, you're bl- you're you're losing blood because your heart doesn't your th- our heart thinks that you have too much, so it doesn't exactly. produce. So much. we can tell it what to think. We can mitigate those responses. Yeah, that's basically what this whole idea of, um, you know, that space CRISPR, you know, gene editing thing because like oh we'll just you know give you these you know gene pills. And uh, you're just as strong and healthy as on Mars as you would be on Earth. I yeah. Mean, as long as you take these, you know, pills or supplements or something that, you know, tells your body this, oh, no, no, things are fine. You're yeah. on Earth. You're good. Yeah. Calm down. Forced, <laughs> adap- forced adaptation mm-hmm. essentially is like forcing your body to kind of get used to the environment that it's in. Because uh, on the, the drive back from brothers, Isaac <laughs> and Jason and I had a lovely conversation on, you know, are humans still, you know, subject to evolution and things like that? And I well, think we are up until the point where we can just choose. Well, we, we kind of adapted the environment we're in, right? Like, because mm-hmm. historically, mm-hmm. you know, Neanderthals were covered in hair. Right now, we're not necessarily covered in hair anymore. It's only in certain, because we, we've, we've made clothes, you know, we've made shoes. Like, our feet aren't as, like, the bottoms aren't as thick as they used to be. Mm-hmm. And we're evolving to, you know, we're, we're having a increased 
processing power, decreased memory. Yeah. And we're having all these other issues. Our RAM is increasing, (laughs) but our hard drive is decreasing. So we can process a lot more information. We just can't hold on to it a lot. Yeah. Um, But there are other things that are happening. Like glasses, for instance, Mm -hmm. is becoming more and more of an issue. Uh, Teeth. You know, uh, there was a study done where two generations after industrializing is when you get teeth problems because you don't need to have those uh, tough, you know, chewing muscles yeah that, your mastication chew. is different <laughs> masticate what's the mastication that's that, chewing yeah. that's chewing yeah okay. to masticate hey learn new things every day there you go um and they're coming out with different solutions to that which is also really interesting like uh you should check it out they have a, a new dental treatment where it's like a spider thing on the top of your mouth horrifying Sorry. that uh pushes your your plates apart to try to get your uh top of your mouth how it was when you know People were still hunting, hunting Wild. and gathering, hmm. um, instead of braces and stuff. Anyway, yeah. that was that was a, a side tangent, but there's all these other effects that the hu- humans are experiencing from not being in this intense, you know, competition environment. So because we're, we're top predator. Well, there's all these other issues that you know humans were evolved for, quote unquote, yeah. um, and it was built for like, hey, just walking will decrease your stress. Yeah. Just doing all, all these other things will decrease your stress. And there's all these human tips and tricks that actually work for a lot of people that they uh, take that as an evolutionary biology, psychology sort of thing. Or a body's made for endurance. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big things that happened, like, in the, the caveman days is, like, you know, we, you'd see mammoth and you go, Persistent mm. you're like, I want a, I want a mammoth steak. Oh, yeah. I love you want that a mammoth idea. steak, but, uh, you know, the mammoth is like, oh, way faster than you. Well, you know, the mammoth can be way faster than you, but you can certainly walk for days on end without issue. But the mammoth, mammoth burns energy a lot quicker and the mammoth can maybe maybe go two miles, you know, in, in two hours. But maybe you can go, you know, two miles in two days, but your energy is going to be conserved a lot longer than that mm-hmm. mammoth. And at a certain point, it's going to exhaust it. Because we're built for efficiency. Yeah. And then we're built mm-hmm. for self Mutilation, actually. I so, did. You, did you know that? Really interesting. I did not Humans, know that. Well, self mutilation is actually not the proper term, but self surgery, fixing it. So we have a higher field shock. field hospital. Mm-hmm. Field hospital. Basically. Field repairs. So they were doing archaeological records, and they were doing historical records, things like that, and they were matching it up, and then they compared it with uh, shock factors for most animals, most mm-hmm. mammals. And we have a higher pain tolerance and pain threshold than almost any other species of animal. Really? So, for instance, like you scare a hamster, it'll just die. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do that for fun. Of no, course. don't do, don't do that for fun. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to do. But they have like that shock threshold. Yeah. Like you know, oh, he's going into shock. That's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Cardiac arrest and all that. That that, hap- that can happen to animals much sooner than most humans like mm-hmm. there's, there's still that you know everybody there's that one person that uh, will faint at blood you know that's, yeah you know you know an echo of it but there's you know records of people operating on themselves without pain uh anesthetic or yeah. anything like that and then being able to put themselves together and then be able to stitch it up and then keep walking <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is a crazy thing um and then a lot of other animals aren't you know made, made for that yeah, I mean, even like opposable thumbs is kind of a, a thing that humanity has over everything else. You know, and then not to get too far from it, but 
maybe James, have you heard of this? So uh, I'm trying to think of so like a Dyson sphere. Most of us know yeah. what a Dyson sphere is. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know what a Dyson sphere is, it's essentially a, a superstructure or mega structure, I guess is a better term, mm -hmm. around your your local star. For us, it would be the sun, where you essentially wrap it with solar panels to absorb 100% of the energy the sun outputs. Okay, so there is. Have you heard of the classes of civilizations? Yes. I'm trying to remember the exact person who authored it. I don't think they even like being titled as it because it was something that they created like as like almost a joke or in passing. But there's like the class. Have you heard of this, Nathaniel? I was talking briefly with Kyle with this about last week. There's the class one civilization. Have you heard of any of these? Potentially keep on going. Okay. So the class one civilization. So this is the closest to humanity war. So this shows how like as we get like more into like the evolution of humanity and like the adaptation that we can create, it's like the class one civilization is like the planet that you're on. You can, you can harvest 100% of the energy it produces. So it's all based on energy. And so humans, this is something that Carl Sagan, I think determined, you know, when he was alive, I think humans are at like a 0.71. So a one means we harvest all of the earth's energy. Okay, a class two civilization harvests all of its stars' energy. So that would be the your you know your Dyson spheres, your Dyson shells, all that. A class three civilization harvests its galaxy's energy. So that's harvesting all of the Milky Way stars and planets, all of that. And so like these are obviously like even more than exponential. They're like exponentials of exponentials for the amount of energy you can get. And then a class four civilization is like you're like harvesting your like universe's energy as a total. So like every single star, every single galaxy, every single planet, every single everything. And so these 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 classes of civilization, although it seems far fetched, even comprehend that it's, you know, if we think that humanity can last for as long as it does, it's like if we can even get to another planet and manage to survive on it. And not even terraform it for reference, even survive on it, then it shows that we're, we're capable of even being able to transmute essentially across our solar system and that maybe billions of years down the line, maybe we can even get to the point where we can harvest most of our energy from our star. From not our galaxy? I don't even know about the, it's a. It's horrifying to think that humanity could harvest all the energy from our galaxy because of just how much time and resources and everything that could happen. But when, go when ahead. you say like the star, it kind of reminds me of. Um, oh, this is gonna be kind of like comical, but uh, when Thor goes back to get his hammer, <laughs> and they use the star to smelt the the um, neutron star, I think is what it is, or it's like the supernova of the star. One or of those, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a star forge. But that's that's like what I'm imagining right now is that we're gonna use a star and we're not gonna exactly make a forge, but we're gonna be somehow transforming that energy. And then are, are we going to transmit it to Earth? Are we going to transmit it to Mars? Or Wire, are we gonna... Wireless power transmission has been something that Nikola Tesla has been talking has Well, he's not like, you know, he's not a head in a jar still talking about it. But <laughs> How old are you? That's something that's, yeah, that's been mentioned. Time traveler? Yeah, you? maybe. Something that's no, been mentioned for years. Though, when you've talked about harvesting all the energy from the sun, you mentioned explicitly solar, and now you're mentioning wireless power, but... Both of those have another component, and that's heat. And mm. harvesting that, especially wirelessly, is an interesting endeavor. Something that's theoretical, but I don't think it's ever been actively like done. It right? almost sounds uh, like breaking the thermodynamics law. Yeah, right? 
Don't mind us. We'll just casually break. Yeah, physics just like stuff. casually bending space time. We'll just casually transmit power wirelessly, right? <laughs> Heat specifically Heat wirelessly. Speci- yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I was. Oh, think- I'm cold. Let me call my friend and he'll send yeah. me some heat. You hear? Hey, text me a degree. You know? <laughs> yeah. Text me a degree. <laughs> and hey, while we're at it, why don't we also take a crack at physics and figure out faster than light travel? Yeah, that's that's one that we've talked about, like. Because, like, a few weeks ago back, uh, I think it was episode eight, Kyle mentioned, like, do you think we'll ever get to, like, another galaxy? And I was like, I don't think that humanity can even possibly fathom getting to another galaxy because the Andromeda is the closest, and it is so far away that I don't think humanity could even get there, uh, even even be, like, well beyond our lifetime with how fast we can go now. It's going to take some serious breakthroughs. And th- that's another thing we discussed, too, is, like, Will technology peter off or step up and increase as time goes on? Remember we talked about this mm-hmm. a few weeks back is as we as we increase our scientific knowledge, like is it going to become exponential or is it going to be continued steps up more and more and more? Or do we need to understand the technology before we can apply it? And I think a lot of Nathaniel and I's arguments was we need to understand the technology before we can apply it. And Kyle, I think you mentioned that you got to apply it before you can necessarily you, you can apply it before you can understand it necessarily mm-hmm. so what do you think of that do you think that you need to necessarily understand everything before you can utilize it well i would say that as a species and i was looking for a convenient time to bring this up humanity is really excellent at applying things well before we understand them i mean anything from the apollo era anything from the early days of human-based space flight Really, how much of that did we have a firm, keen understanding before NASA was NASA, when NASA was was NACA, when we were first developing aerodynamic profiles? Mm -hmm. I mean, heck, even as recently as the F-117, which was not done with the geometric and computer-based modeling that we all know and love today, but was done by hand, that would reflect not necessarily understanding or being able to fully understand all of the elements that we had in play, but we applied them anyway. So I think that in all honesty, both of you guys, all of you guys are correct, that we will apply things before we fully understand them, but we will be understanding them as we apply them. That will then in turn allow us new things, which we don't totally understand to apply. That will then repeat the cycle. You know, I know you're in leadership because, again, I state that that is a very political answer. <laughs> a very political answer. Yes, you are both correct in your own ways. I mean... But you're not wrong. But, yeah, that's If you true. want me to be less political, I would say that I strongly lean in favor of... Um, we apply things before we understand them because human curiosity is perhaps <laughs> right up there it with is the true. indomitable human spirit as perhaps my little bit of toxic optimism. That's it. It's exactly what I call it. How we as a people just continue to move forward after everything we go through on the individual, on the populace, on the global scale. We just keep moving on because honestly, in the best possible ways, we are just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What else are we supposed to do, right? Well, I had a thought about the galaxy thing. This mm-hmm. is a little kind of backtracking. But I can totally see us like ungabunging the uh Unga Boonga Unga Boonga mode. Like we'll we'll just do it. How are we gonna do it? We're gonna pack a bunch of people and they're gonna make babies and then they're just gonna be on colony the ship, ship and they're just exactly. gonna be colony ship. I mean that's like the most basic idea for how we're going to be even doing it. It's like it's like if we were to do ever like in not 
not interstellar, but intrastellar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like in in solar system. So like if we we're gonna ever go to like Enceladus or Titan, it's like that's gonna take so many years. It's like, are we gonna have enough food? Like, it, are we gonna be able to freeze people, or are they going to be like doing generations worth it would have of breeding? To be a totally sustained and closed system. Yeah. Every and every bit of energy would have to go right reused. Back in, yeah. Reused. They would have to have extremely planned. Solar everything panels. Would have, you know, that's what it would be. Not just solar panels. Food, energy, oh, yeah, activity. The, the solar energy Kids. is what you're going to have to use because that's that's the most existent, like the most abundant resource in solar system is solar energy and solar right. wind. Mm-hmm. So it's like you need to utilize that to its highest extent. So like whether you use that to like grow crops and you know be able to power the ship or even push the ship with a solar sail, solar mm-hmm. sails are probably like the best usage of that. That's or, another thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's another thing. Generally, is just as best I understand, if I remember correctly. All of the Apollo programs um, and any of the proposed current moon missions on Artemis, and I believe the Chinese are planning something similar, you burn almost all of your fuel to get into orbit, Mm -hmm. then you have a tiny bit of fuel for course correction, Mm -hmm. then a tiny bit of fuel to get off the moon once you're coming home, and then typically no fuel, you just rely on heat shields and parachutes to get you actually back down. What if you had the same amount of fuel that you do, the same amount of Delta V to leave a planet just up there in space? Uh, There are some really awesome concept art proposals for basically using the equivalent of a space shuttle tank or more recently Starship designs for just being massive floating fuel tanks. And in theory, if helium-3 is as abundant as people like to hope it is on On the the moon, that could also be derived into a fuel source. Conversely, you have on satellites, things like, I believe both Voyagers, but I don't remember, and most other probes have small electromagnetic propulsion-based or ion-based thrust systems that they produce a comparatively minuscule amount of thrust, but they can produce it forever, which leads to the funkiest Delta Vs you've ever seen, because technically they're massive. The RTGs, they they put out a lot of power over time. Yeah, just in tiny increments for yeah. their weight. Because it's that little bit of acceleration, but there's no drag. There's nothing to stop you. So you can almost, I mean, I said this is, again, you can infinitely accelerate almost, but it's like if you're going someplace, say you're going to a different star, it's like the halfway point you kind of need to turn around to slow down, <laughs> you know? So you need to have half your fuel, fuel to get there at a minimum and then half your fuel to slow down. I mean, yeah, like... One of the most fantasy elements of the show, The Expanse, and the books mm-hmm. is the quote-unquote Epstein drive, which yes. I mm-hmm. believe is supposed to be some variation on nuclear uh, energy, with the idea being that it can provide a basically infinite amount, or infinite until the plot calls for otherwise, uh, The propulsion. Deus Ex Machina drive. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean... Right now, part of the reason why even going to the moon takes so many days is because of our inability to propel ourselves for most of that trip because it just doesn't make sense to take that much fuel up there. But if you had something that could produce, I believe the show likes to centralize around 1G of propulsion for the sake of gravity constantly, then the transit time to the moon, to Mars, even to the outer planets would be greatly reduced. I think it's it's crazy. People, I don't think people really realize how far things are in our own solar system, because like the it's like Saturn alone, I think is like eight light hours away 
eight light hours. So if you want to, if you want to do the math on that, that's eight times thirty-six hundred times six trillion. I think is a light year, or it's eight times thirty-six hundred times one hundred eighty-six thousand miles per second. So whatever that is, that's how far it is. And you know, if you want to drive that at sixty miles per hour, then uh, is it eight light hours? Is it close? Am I close? No, I was actually looking up something similar, but a little different. Um, because yeah, like for time, the speed of light, one of the fastest things that I think we as people can reasonably comprehend. Radio signals, more or less, there are people who would rightfully so debate me down on this who understand radio signals better than I do, and fair enough, but for the sake of this consideration, radio signals more or less move at the speed of light, and it will take one of those signals about 20 minutes to get between Mars and Earth. Mm -hmm. So, for a people in tin cans that can't even come close to that, yeah, of course it's going to take us months to get to Mars. Yeah, it's, I mean, and, you know, this is something that we were going to mention on the last podcast when we were interviewing Nick for, from Hale. A lot of people don't even think about this, is time dilation. Yep. So time dilation, in theory, is something that exists around black holes where the 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 speed or the you know the escape velocity of the black hole approaches the speed what well, is the speed of light at the event horizon and that's such an unfathomable thing you can't even think about it but the speed of light is around you every single day you know you turn on a light that's the speed of light right it turning on right and you don't think about it but you know as you approach the speed of light even in a minuscule level as you approach the speed of light time becomes slightly different for you and so when we're talking about going these not even interstellar distances, distances, intrastellar, so in our own solar system, <laughs> going to Saturn, if you're going, you know, 28,000 miles per hour, you know, time's going to be slightly different for you than on Earth. And this, this is not even like science fiction. This is science fact because we've looked at the atomic clocks on satellites that have been set up in like the 60s. And now the atomic clocks are like a, either it's slightly fast I think it is slightly no, it's slightly slow because mm -hmm. they've been going at a slower rate, and this is not even like this is not massive difference. It's by the it's like by a matter of like nanoseconds or, or you know microseconds. Right. But they are slightly behind as compared to Earth because they've been moving closer to the speed of light than the rest of Earth, and so if you look at the atomic clocks on there, they're slightly younger than the rest of the Earth in that, and if they were born at the same period. And that time dilation, it, it's not something that, you know, is not going to exist if we go to, like, a different planet or a different solar system. You know, the closer you go to the speed of light, the closer you come to stopping in time. And as we talk about going these further and further distances, if we choose to go the route of more speed rather than more time, then that that distance or that, that dilation. issue, yeah, the dilation is only going to increase to a degree where if we're 99% of the speed of light, then that person is going to be, you know, it's going to be slowed down aging-wise 99%. Not that that's, you know, necessarily possible with technology nowadays, but it's, it's something that's so fascinating to think about that humanity even has that small glimpse of what it's like to be, you know, that to the speed of light. And then, of course, something that we have the pleasure of not needing to worry about when talking about signals, but we definitely have to worry about when we're talking about moving matter 
is the nice little equation for kinetic energy, <laughs> which is one half mass times velocity squared. Square. Right. So the faster you move, the exponentially more kinetic energy you have, which means that if something that isn't moving is hit by you, it stands to reason that if you are anywhere near the speed of life, life, pardon me, speed of light, both you and it will probably instantly be obliterated. I think there's a famous scene in the the Last Jedi Star Wars movie <laughs> that it, that shows that exact same thing. Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, well, also, you know, that's you bring up another fair point, which is like if we're going to land on these like different planetary bodies, people. So like as engineers, we know it. Okay, G. What's G? Gravity. Yeah, and what is gravity on Earth? 9.81 meters per second squared, right? Correct. Or 32. Okay, or 32, por- or 32 <laughs> feet per second per second. All right. Everyone knows that. Every engineer knows that. So, but gravity on a different planet, it's different. Like, what's Jupiter's? You don't know. What's Long Mars? Something. You don't know. What's <laughs> yeah. the moon? It's like a third of. Uh, what's the moon? It's like Earth. one sixth. It's like yeah. you think about like you think about this, right? And then it's also based on like the mass of the planet, and then like Venus. Venus is like 88 times Earth gravity. Not because of the size, but because of the atmosphere. You know, we don't think well, about the massive column of atmosphere sitting above us every single day on Earth, right? Like that amount of mass that could exist. Well, it's not just the atmosphere; it's, it's proximity to the sun, right? Well, it's well the 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 massive amount of weight that you would be on Venus is definitely because of the the clouds. Mm-hmm. Like the the heat that you're absorbing from being on Venus is because of like the the carbon dioxide and like the greenhouse ga- greenhouse gases in the proximity to the sun. But your 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 weight on Venus is definitely due to like the mass of the planet being I think it's like eighty nine percent of Earth's or you know pretty close mm-hmm. to it. But also because of the massive amount of carbon dioxide clouds sitting above your head just pushing on you, right? So what you're saying is if we got if we took care of that. We can colonize Venus. I mean, yeah. Well, another thought about colonizing anything, people always talk about Mars. Venus Venus has such a massive cloud layer, and its proximity to the sun, of course, makes it so hot. But people never, people that don't necessarily know about it don't ever discuss about living on top of the clouds. The surface of Venus is, you know, they, you know Venus is volcanically active, one of the few volcanically active things in the solar system, other than Io, which is a moon of Jupiter. But they have some, or they, as if people live on it, uh, Venus has something called flake tectonics, like how we have plate tectonics. Mm-hmm. But the surface of Venus is still like volcanically active. But uh, you know all this this carbon dioxide and all these other trace gases being off put by the planet. But if you're on the clouds of Venus, you're clean, baby. You don't have to worry about the gravity. So you don't have to worry about me. the toxic air. You don't have to worry about the 800 degrees Celsius air on the surface. What about the sun? Well, the sun is still going to be hot, but you put, on, <laughs> you, you put on you put on some hundred SPF. I'm sure you'll be fine. So what you're telling me is we can best in this. Yeah, I mean, I once cloud, cloud city. city yeah. I, I, think I, I think I once mentioned this on the podcast, but for well, whatever reason, I did the math like based on some assumptions and estimates for how how much air it would take to sit on the 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 surface of the clouds of Venus, and it's not impossible. <laughs> Going to that cloud city uh, theory and realm, because uh, I was thinking about what if we just get a huge magnifying glass and get it next, <laughs> get it next to the sun. I don't know which planet we'd go to or like which orbit next to the sun we'd go to, and just magnify even more. Is this the like sun's... a Tom and Jerry cartoon? This is this is just so, something I just came up with just recently. All right. Uh, so I don't know how well like profound this. it is. Are you or sure how... you're gonna say it on air? You don't want to give away this idea. I mean. 
We'll see. If, if, if it happens, you know, you heard it here first. Yeah, of course. But just get this huge magnifying glass. And it's kind of going back to that Thor's hammer idea. Okay. And just <laughs> aiming it either, I don't know if we want to aim it at Earth or maybe the moon. Probably not Earth. Maybe the moon and have some solar or some type of just solar panel heat or what am I trying to say? Basically some energy collector. Service. Yeah, some energy collector. With a high absorptivity. Yes. Probably but shouldn't point it anywhere near Earth. How about you point it at Mars? That might be a good idea. That that would be better. Have it track Mars's uh, orbit. Well, it would it would uh, it would heat up the surface just based on the atmosphere, and then maybe even melting some of the polar ice would create some more carbon dioxide atmosphere to at least give some possibly ozone creation with mm-hmm. the H two O that's in there with the carbon dioxide like ice. And then maybe from there you could start to work on getting a better atmosphere going. So we but first, we it. need that magnifying glass. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if you heat up the surface and you get more carbon dioxide, because it's thin atmosphere, you get more carbon dioxide, then you could start to maybe put plants if it's warm enough. But then back to that cloud city. So this cloud city would be the one, the city that would maintain this magnifying glass. Uh huh. They're solar miners. We're not just going to put one in a Lagrange point in orbit. We could. That's what I said. Like Sorry, we, we could, we could, orange. we could do that, or we could just have the Cloud City, which would be kind of cool. But we should talk to NASA about the big magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might accept it. Well, um, going back to something you mentioned earlier about gravity, I don't remember what it's called exactly, but there is an excellent visualization for gravity at the equivalent of sea level on every planet in our solar system, including the Sun, from just dropping a car from like ten feet up. Oh, you're talking about uh, it's called it's a game called Beam NG, and they there is the simulated gravity on each of the surfaces of the different orbital bodies, and like the sun, obviously just like turns you into mincemeat. Yep. Or like Jupiter is like twelve times that of Earth's gravity, so you weigh like way more. It's uh, let's just say I mean like I don't remember the equation off the top of my head, but you got to use the U- U- Newton's universal gravity constant, big G, and that's how you calculate little G. <laughs> That beautiful equation. <laughs> that beautiful, and then you gotta know like the mass of like the the body that you're talking about, and that's and then again, even the mass of the body is an estimate, right? right? It's not like we know the perfect like the the composition of Earth. I have this crazy idea. So we put a railgun oh, on the magnifying oh, glass. On the mag? No, I'm kidding. We put a railgun in space. So we have this acceleration that's entirely electric. We have no air resistance. We have no drag. We basically just put thrusters facing forward to slow down, and if we can aim it almost linearly, what do you think? Well, I, will, I put we put that sucker on the moon. I was gonna remind you if it's in orbit, I will remind you of Newton's law, which is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> so we put it on the dark side of the moon. We push the moon closer to. We, we knock the moon into Earth, of course. No, uh, no, it's like so. So the moon is naturally going further and further away. Yeah, it's like away. two centimeters. Two a centimeters year. away. So how? So if we're sh- shooting little tiny... Yeah, it should be fine. It should be fine. Yeah. Or might just counteract it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't Or, you know, out. hey, we just, you know, stop doing this for a year or two. Yeah. You know? <laughs> because we keep coming back to it, um, it's a ni- neat little thing that somebody pointed out to me a while ago. In the Expanse, they have railguns. Mm-hmm. And you don't hardly see this for the bigger ships because relative to a much, much bigger body, the yeah. action is... But for the small ship, the little hero ship, they have the funky little idea in one of the later seasons to strap a railgun on there. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Every time that railgun is fired, if the shot is panning around the back of the ship, you see its engines fire up momentarily. 
because it is counteracting exactly you gotta that. you got to cancel it out. So, yeah, you could technically use a railgun as a means of propulsion or counter-propulsion. Well, he's talking Boom. about the Orion Drive. Remember when we're in no, the like, oh, first episode? Like oh, nuclear no. or something. Well, yeah, we don't the, have time to get yeah. that <laughs> many <laughs> nuclear I mentioned that on the first vehicle. episode, the Orion Drive, which You'll is You'll make every crazy. nuclear engineer mad at you. No, it's beautiful because it's, it's not beautiful. necessarily a nuclear weapon, but it's like that deuterium, the, the, the deuterium core that they, they, you know, they're just going to rocket jump. Away what do they space. do? <laughs> yeah, just... Bungie yeah. saw it first. The know? Orion Drive, one of the one of the greatest, the greatest ideas that have ever come out of the Cold War. Absolutely awesome. But seriously, isn't that like the so? Railgun, like railgun launch pad on the moon. I mean, you're talking about stuff that people have definitely discussed with like real money, you know, where they're like, we could do it. And theoretically, they could. I mean, the moon is not necessarily easy to get to right now, but, you know, 238,900 miles away, you got to ship a lot of material. Yeah, easier to get to than Mars. I mean, yeah. Might but, be better than the long run. But getting to, you know, Europe is a lot easier than Next getting day to shipping, the, the you know? moon. <laughs> yeah, shipping <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> There's going to be a prime on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, you think Blue Origin ships it there? <laughs> I mean, you know, all this stuff is so hard to imagine just because, you know, the ISS is, like, the biggest thing we put into space, like, total, right? For now. And that took, yeah, for now. That's, I mean, it's fair, but it took many years to get that up there. And they're already talking about getting, a, like, a new IS, like the ISS-2 electric boogaloo, right? Well, <laughs> the Artemis mission, they're going to have that uh, space station that orbits the, the moon. moon now. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's supposed to be fully configurable to whatever mission or whatever other country wants to add on to it. Yeah, which I thought was pretty interesting and amazing. Um, and then also the fact that uh, now what you're gonna do is you're gonna come out from Earth, go to this space station that's next to the Moon, mm-hmm. dock, and then from the space station you get out into another little pod that can go back and forth from the Moon, just like the Apollo uh, Eleven and to, you know all up. Right, and I was like, whoa, like this is brand new stuff like yeah so i'm actually sorry no go for it no yeah so i'm actually seriously considering like the the step-by-step process of this so we want something bigger we want something better how you know how much pre-infrastructure is going to have to be rebuilt if we wanted to go bigger dude there is so much that is required to even start building something on the moon hold on so like so we talked about the horse idea with all the rockets yeah and all the the trains and all the infrastructure that is going to be used for this rocket is probably going to have to be redone and rebuilt. Yeah. We're going to have to tunnel through mountains again. We're yeah. going to have to be rebuilding all of this. We're going to have to totally redesign a huge chunk of America's infrastructure just to get this done. Yeah. And then and then send send it up. That's got to be like a. I feel like if we're going to ever get to that point, that's going to be like a, a humanity united. Like, we need to be, like, all for one at that point. Like, if we realize that, like, I mean, we've, well, no, we've known for a while that, like, like global warming and all that mm-hmm. or climate change has not been necessarily good for the Earth. At that point, I feel like we've got to, like, invest every resource for every continent or every country into, like, getting that going, Isn't you know? Isn't that kind of what the ISS was? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what the ISS was. Well, it's also an interesting thing you mentioned there with rebuilding infrastructure. When the ISS was first designed, I'm pretty sure you would have been called crazy if you had brought up the idea of 3D printing to any of those people. 
But now, there, I believe there are active tests being currently run on the International Space Station for 3D printing in a zero-G environment, and there have also been more than a few contracts put out for using natively available material on both Mars and the Moon to create livable habitats. Now that's not nearly as complicated as a space station, but if we want to get really far out there, you start to think about mining asteroids that mm -hmm. are entirely metal, then really you don't need to worry about infrastructure down here. You need to worry about infrastructure up there. So what you're saying is we should put a refinery in space. I mean, it would be... Back to Thor's Forge. No. Remember when JJ said that my idea was dumb? I didn't say <laughs> it was dumb. I said the tank was dumb. Don't get me missed. Hey, 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 hey. Chill on the tank. Hey, Chill hey, on hey. the tank. I'll demote you. <laughs> so uh, one of the other podcasts that we had, we were talking about asteroid mining. Uh, you should totally go check that out again. And I think it's episode 11. Maybe. Well, it was it was the okay. the interview with Hale. Okay, and we brought up the idea of well, you know, we need to be able to heat and move this material. We need to be able to work it to actually use it. And why bring it back down to Earth if we're just going to put it back up again? Don't say to, it. To do it. I thought you were going to say, don't say it. So we so get this. We basically get a series of it. magnifying glass. Ah, he said it. Take heat energy from the sun. Tom and Jerry use cartoon. that to melt because there's nothing in between. There's I have nothing a few blocking friends it. who Tom are very much into optics that like to have a word with you. Tom and Jerry. Um, optics are incredible. In a good way I'm or Tom. a bad way? Very bad and way. I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> optics are incredibly delicate. And mm -hmm. everything Hubble's I, Hubble Space Telescope prefix. Everything I understand about them suggests that unless you're doing things in a very particular way, they're not well built for the conditions of outer space. Thank you. <laughs> and also, I Diamond want to mention lens. before we forget, <laughs> for those of you listening, if you have skills in 3D printing and want to know how to stay on a resume, say additive manufacturing. There you go. Bingo. Say that. <laughs> Don't say 3D printing. Say additive manufacturing. Anyway. And that message is approved by JJ. Yeah, that is. Yeah, you can <laughs> at me. <laughs> you can at me at H-A-N-N. <laughs> H-A-N-N-A-N. C-O-L. No, 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 At, you know, you can send that to S-H-E-A at J at OregonState.edu. Close, you missed a letter. J-A. There you go. I remember. I received enough emails from you. Yeah, well. My email is available in enough public places that there's no point in hiding that one. Yeah, I was going to say, if uh, <laughs> if anyone has any interest in maybe AIAA or they need to contact you for whatever reason for MIME or whatever reason, uh, how can they reach you? Yeah, I'm happy to take uh, complaints, comments, concerns, refunds, and otherwise requests. At... Compliments, <laughs> too. At my uh, Oregon State email, which is just S-H-E-A-J-A at OregonState.edu. And uh, my response times can range anywhere from about 30 seconds to about three or four days. Um, and I provide no promises. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Also, it should also be noted, if I remember correctly, our, uh, our term general body meetings, those are actually open to the public? Yes, they are. And it's the one time, because if you approach any team captain, no offense, of course, Chances are they aren't going to know everything there is to know about the other teams. They'll have plenty of information about their own and maybe a vague idea about what the other seven teams are doing. Hey, listen, me in particular, we've interviewed every single team. Give me some <laughs> credit here, pal. But during our general body meetings, which happen once a term, all eight teams will at least have representatives, or on the rare occasion, uh, yours truly with no notes, <laughs> um, 
presenting on where they're at, what they have opportunity-wise, and what they're doing. And it's a great opportunity to get involved because even with spring term, as all of the guys on USLI are very painfully familiar with, at the same time as you're preparing and doing your last-minute checks for competition, you're also beginning to gear up for the next year because chances are, over the summer, there will be requirements. Yep, that's exactly how we started. Indeed. We were kind of just thrown in the fire, you trial know, by fire. And for those of you that are listening that might end up being future USLI members, um, there's a few of us that are planning on trying to continue our capstone project uh, into next term in which we try to prepare the next generation of USLI better than we were prepared uh, in hopes to help, uh, you know, help with some of the problems that we foresaw after experiencing them. And maybe you guys won't have to spend your whole summer or (laughs) winter break or spring spring break working on the USLI project. Yeah, the whole idea is to to set up everyone better than we were set up, which not necessarily saying we were set up badly, but... You know, we kind of went into a blind. It could be more efficient, so you have more time working on the project itself than learning. And enjoying it. <laughs> so, does anyone uh, have any anything else? We're pretty close to time here. Not really. Well. You know what they say. Yeah. <laughs> at, least at least it's, it's not, not rocket science. science. Oh, look at that. <laughs> James, thank you so much for being here. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to everyone again next week. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Have a nice night and uh, goodbye. Cheers. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.